Welcome to Onsite. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have a gentleman who I met many years ago in his hometown, in his office, which was one of the more interesting places I've visited as far as offices go. I have a, a deep respect for him because he has built his own company. He's been doing it for 40 years and he's built it into the number one boutique real estate agency in the United Kingdom. And uh, everyone on this call who knows me knows that I have a soft spot for boutique agencies and, and experts in their field. So uh, my guest today is both of those. I'd like to welcome Gary Hersham to on site. Uh, Gary, uh, as I said, built Belchamp Estates in the United Kingdom. He'll tell us a little bit more about that. But if there is an expert in the market, it's Gary. He knows the ins and outs of it. He's seen it evolve. And I'm really excited to talk to him today to kind of get an insight into what's going on in the United Kingdom, who the buyers are, what luxury real estate means. And uh, Gary, welcome. Really, awesome. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. Thank you very much indeed. Very nice of you to have me on your show. I really appreciate it. What did I miss in the intro about your bio? First of all, I started Beecham Estates, not Beauchamp, but Beecham Estates. It's the old French-English pronunciation of a French word, probably in 1979, something around that time. Um, we've built it up into a multinational estate agency group with offices in London, the south of France, Italy, Greece, and Israel. We have an associate office in New York with Leslie J. Garfield. We are trying to open in Portugal. We're opening a new office in London in the next two or three weeks, I hope. We've opened two new ones last year, one in Central Bay, one in Tel Aviv. And I just let you, I will let you ask me as many questions as you like, and I'll try to answer them as quickly and as correctly as I possibly can. <laughs> Beautiful. First of all, my sincere apologies for the mispronunciation. I was going to say, important. yeah, well, I was going to say, you say tomato, I say tomato, but I say tomato too. So um, I can't use that one. But so maybe let's start with um, where we are right now. What's going on in the UK? I've been told that the market there was in a decline for the last five years. Then it rebounded from Brexit at the end of 2020. You guys have been, you've had so much going on, kind of like we have in New York City. What's the state of the market right now? Well, let's just start a little bit further back, shall we? Because let's say coming up for three years ago, I can't quite remember, the government had a referendum and that referendum backfired. The result of the referendum was, shall we or shall we not stay in the European market? And as you well know, we've now exited the European market. But in the interim, various other things happened that affected the residential market in, in England, particularly in prime central London. First of all, as you know, we had this Brexit toing and froing. Then we had new elections. Then we had wealth tax, the situation vis-a-vis -vis people coming to England and whether they should pay tax or not. And then this whole business of, uh, of non-DOMs arose. So one after another. Then we had 12% stamp duty and 15% stamp duty, which is 
a percentage of your total sale price that has to be paid to the government upon completion of the sale. So if you're buying a property for, let's say, 10 million sterling, it's costing you 11.2 if you buy it in your own name or 11.5 you buy it in a corporate vehicle. All those things affected the London residential market. Now, fast forward to today, 2021, we are in a lockdown period. We've been in, this is our third lockdown period in the space of 10 or 11 months. Viewings are not easy, but believe it or not, sales have been pretty good. In the last year, we sold a house. And again, forgive me for mentioning this number. It's always embarrassing when I do, but we sold a house for 210 million sterling. Yeah, I, 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 I want to talk about that a little bit later. I, I definitely want to talk about the 210 million sterling deal. But but um, I want to pause you right here because it's like everything you're describing to me, we're doing some of the same things in New York City. And it seems to me like the governments in these two cities are doing everything they can to chase away luxury buyers and penalize them. You could not have put it better. Imagine that those very rich buyers, not only do they buy the finest residential properties in the countries that they're in, but they spend huge amounts of money, whether it's in retail, whether it's on in restaurants, whether it's in the theater, whether it's buying presents, whether it's buying cars. The amount of money that they bring to the country is enormous, absolutely enormous. And I thought to myself, well, surely, instead of putting a tax on property, Maybe the government should increase VAT, value-added tax. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't. They increased stamp duty. And you're absolutely right. It's almost a deterrent for foreigners to come to England, and I suppose from what you're telling me, come to America, to buy property. But having said that, believe it or not, it hasn't been a deterrent. Because we are selling, I can't say hand over fist, that would not be very true, but we have sold probably half a dozen properties between 50 and 60 million quid this year in the last 12 months, 50 and 60 million pounds. I'm sorry, quid, you won't understand. 50 mm -hmm. and 60 million pounds in the last year. There are lots of Chinese buyers, lots of Indian buyers, Arab buyers coming right, left and center. It's, it's a surprisingly interesting market for a surprisingly very difficult period of time. Well, then I guess the question is maybe, I mean, I hate to say this, maybe they know what they're doing if it's not a deterrent or just to play devil's advocate, could you imagine what the market might have been if in fact they didn't have these things that were kind of well, disincentivizing? Yeah, sure. That's a very good point. What you're suggesting was if they hadn't had all of these deterrents, surely the market would have been three times as, as good as it is now, four times as good as it is now. And you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I suspect that's what would have happened. But then again, uh, forgive me for running ahead of myself, but what do we find happens in the UK? We seem to be the recipients of flights of capital. I, I think you must understand what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think New York City, I think there are a lot of parallels between London and New York for the same reasons, flights of capital. I mean, I think it's argued that New York and London are the two major global cities, you know, that people are attracted to. So I think there's a lot of parallel there. And a lot of the Seems same reasons... that New York is more expensive than London is, from what I've re recently read. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So, you know, we had our first 
200 million plus sale here in New York City um, a year and a half ago. And who was that to Ken Griffin? Yes, I mean, it's public. So yes, to Ken Griffin. So I know that he bought something in the UK as well. But talk to me a little bit about this $210 million deal you, you personally did in Knightsbridge in January. And how did this deal come together? It was like a 62,000 square foot mansion. Is that correct? Plus minus, yes. So what is two hundred and ten million? What does two hundred and ten million dollars buy you in Knightsbridge? What do you get for your money? Well, actually, it was two hundred and ten million sterling, and if you use today's exchange rate, that's probably closer. Have you got a calculator in front of you? I do. I What's, do. Yeah, let me look this up. What's so do two hundred and ten times one point four. Okay, so we have two hundred and ninety-four. So we'll round it up to three hundred million dollars. So, as of today, with the exchange rate as it is, it's the most expensive house ever sold in the world. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And it was a very strange situation because this house belongs to one of the senior Saudi royal family members. Its original owner, in fact, the man who owned it before he passed away, would have become the king of Saudi Arabia had... He not passed away. He was in line for the throne. Mm. House passed to his son, who was a very nice person. And I had been working on or around this house for ages, finding it very, very, very difficult to gain access, finding it very difficult when I managed to speak to the right people to be allowed to show the property. And out of the blue, we were dealing with a major Chinese public company in the UK, and they said to me, look, we want to develop a top luxury residential apartment building in prime central London. What have you got? I said, well, I haven't really got very much because there isn't that much stock around in London. But I've got this building in Rutland Gate. It's got planning consent for 13 uh, apartments. And although it's 61 or 62,000 square feet, in terms of apartments, when you take the net from the gross to the net, you end up with 43,000 square feet. I mean, by your standards, that's tiny when you talk about one of your New York buildings. That's absolutely tiny. Mm -hmm. In any event, the Chinaman came along, looked at the building, or his managing director did, and said, nah, not for us, not for us. It's not, it's not right for us. But you never know. The chairman might be interested in it for himself. Well, six or seven weeks passed, Chairman arrives, fleet of Range Rovers, four men on the duck boards of each of the Range Rovers jump off, open the door to the chairman. He goes into the house. Remember, it's six stories or seven stories high. So you've got about 10,000 square foot of floor. He looked at one of the bit floors and left. And he said, fine, I want the house. That, that quick? Yeah, that quick. That and that's quick. how the deal happened? That quick. He looked at one and a half floors at most, perhaps not even one and a half floors. And um, six weeks later or eight weeks later, because it was a corporate transaction, it takes a while to do the corporate work on the legal side. You know, in England, if you buy the entity, the vehicle that owns the property, you don't pay any stamp duty. So on the one hand, if you buy the property straightforwardly, you pay 15% stamp duty if you want to put it into a company. If you buy the company that owns it, you pay zero. 
So that was a saving of 31 of uh, 21, 31 million pounds. Imagine your tax saving was 31 million pounds. Unbelievable. So, you know, people listening to this now uh, <laughs> are doing the math on the commission. I'm not going to get into that, but they, you're making this sound so easy. And it's almost like, oh, my God, Gary, you just won the lottery. You got this huge commission on this deal. It was no work. But what I you know, want to tell the listeners here is that your career of more than 40 years has set up the platform for you to actually get this kind of thing done. You know, a lot of the TV shows of kind of sensationalized uh, real estate brokerage and transactions to be like an easy thing. It sounds easy, but I'm sure there were complications and everything you've done in your career prior to this moment has set you up for this. So I, j I just want to be clear about that. That's absolutely very true and very clear. And, and for every for every one of these is a, which is one in a career, there are thousands of those that you know you get stood up in the rain, you have people put in false bids. There's a lot of heartache and uh, suffering <laughs> to get you to this one. I think people believe that an estate agent's job, a broker's job, is very easy, so long as you've got the gift of the gab, you're home and dry. Well, that's not true. Not true at all. It's a huge amount of hard work. You need all the facts at your fingertips. You need all the comparable evidence. You need records of all sales. You need to be able to speak to a buyer with uh, conviction and understand what they're looking for and what their issues might be. It's a, quite a difficult job, I have to tell you. As you rightly say, Sean, there are moments that are so depressing, you, you know, you want to give up. It's a very difficult job and it has its great moments, its moments of great success. But that's not happening every day of the week or every month of the year. Right. So going back to this Knightsbridge property, okay, so it's 62,000 square feet. But tell me, what's inside? What's inside? Can you describe to us like what that money buys? I can. I'm not so sure you want to hear, but I can. But you just say, go ahead, and I'll describe it. Well, yeah, I mean, give me the cliff notes. Like, is there a – I would imagine that you'd have everything in there you could imagine in a in – a, you know, let us live vicariously through your description. If I were to say to you that the house had been completely ripped out, the lifts didn't work, the marble bathrooms had been removed, the owners had been advised prior to my selling it that it would be a very good idea if they took all the furniture out, all the marble out, all the maquillage out, all the taps and everything else out, and sell it in auction and sell a shell. Well, they sold the most dilapidated shell I've seen in a long time. So actually, there was nothing there. You went into a room, it was a bathroom, nothing left, all ripped out. You went into a room, the cornices had gone, no curtains. The whole house, room by room by room, had been stripped to the bone. And guess what? It's going to be put back together as a palace. So I guess what sold this house, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like is the, just the square footage and the location. I suspect that it is probably one of, if not the largest single family house triple fronted, so the frontage of the house must have been a good hundred feet, had its own small carriage driveway. It had windows overlooking Hyde Park, so the higher you went up the building, the better your view was across Hyde Park. 
It was right in front of Hyde Park. It wasn't blocked from Hyde Park at all. There's another building called the Knights Bridge, a few hundred yards down to the left. And that is completely blocked by the uh, Knights Bridge Barracks. So if you're not above the sixth floor, you see nothing. In this case, every window overlooked Hyde Park. But the higher up you went, the better and clearer the views were. So you're absolutely right. It was sold on the basis of its volume, its size, its width, and its position. Sounds majestic. And um, talking about Hyde Park, you know, I got on a plane about, must be about 10 years now. You know, I work in new development, as you know, and I heard all this buzz about one Hyde Park, the project next to the Mandarin that the Candy Brothers were doing. And I heard that the sales center there was, you know, spectacular. I got on a plane to go and see the sales center. It was kind of underwhelmed, to be honest, um, with what I Where saw. Where did you see the sales center? Did you see it at number 100 Knightsbridge in their offices at 100 Knightsbridge? I saw it had a like a very cool, the one cool thing was it had this like 3D axoniometric uh, of the building that, you know, it, and it had the sample kitchens and the bathrooms. And yeah, I saw the, the Mac Daddy sales center. But it seemed like that project, and correct me if I'm wrong, was a turning point for new development in London. It kind of set. It's certainly a, new a turning point for price per square foot. Because so, up to the point in time that number one Hyde Park became a real project. £1,500 a square foot was just about, you might get it once in a blue moon, but more likely 1000 or £1,100 a square foot was the top end of the range. Number one, Hyde Park initially put the price on the map at four and a half to £5,000 a square foot. Where do those units sell today? Six and a quarter, six and a half, six and a bit, seven, if you're very lucky. Right. And then when I would, would, toured London back then, it didn't seem like there were a lot of those types of buildings. There around. aren't. There still aren't. So is there a need for that? Are buyers out there looking for that type of product? Do you think if someone built it, they'll come and, and pay over £6,000 a foot? Absolutely. What are they looking for when they want to come into a building? Well, like that? What is today's buyer two, need? I think they're looking for two things. The first is the amenities of the building. So in number one Hyde Park, you have your gym, you have your conference rooms, you have your private rooms, you have your private office if you want to use it. You have your cinema, you have your simulated golf room, um, you have a dining room if you want it, you have a room where you can entertain people, almost a banquet. Um, you have a swimming pool, you have a gymnasium, you have everything you can imagine. You have your car parking, your locker rooms, your storage. Can you imagine the car parking spaces number one Hyde Park can go as high as £400,000 a park? Yeah, we had a project in New York City. We were selling them for a million dollars a parking space. Well, that's more than London. But I think you, you, you have you, it's much more difficult to park in New York than it is in London. In yeah. Manhattan, for sure. Right, absolutely. So let's talk about the inside in these apartments. So we, we understand the amenities now. You know, it seems like every city is building these buildings uh, with every amenity imaginable. Um, what's the inside of these apartments? How has that changed? Like the kitchens, the bathrooms, the living rooms. What are some of the elements you're seeing inside that kind of are moving the market? 
I have to say that the amenities in the apartments, you've got three or four reception rooms. If you take a full floor plate in number one Hyde Park, which spans from back to front, and I don't know if you remember the shape of the building, but it sort of narrows at one end, narrows at the other end, and then goes like two triangles back to back. Yeah. They're very beautifully done, but they're not better than any redeveloped house or apartment in prime central London. What have they got? Fabulous marbles, bathrooms, lovely kitchens, good floor, marble floors, every bedroom with bathroom or suite, all decent-sized bedrooms, all decent-sized drawing rooms, Crestron, Lutron, all the systems you can imagine, cinema rooms, everything that you can imagine, but you still get all those facilities inside your flat or inside your house in any top-end refurbishment or new-build apartment in prime central London. It's not exclusive number one Hyde Park. Right. So why are we not seeing more of these buildings built if they're so successful? If there is the market there, what, what's stopping development? Uh, where are you going in? to build them? Where are you going to find the land to build them on? <laughs> the next one I suspect is when uh, the Ministry of Defence decides to sell the Knightsbridge Barracks, which is a stone's throw for number one Hyde Park and a stone's throw from Rutland Gate sitting on the park and that will be the next one if it comes up it was being mooted to come up beforehand it never did that will be the next big site there are about 11 buildings going up or finishing in uh, in in mayfair you've got the two grosvenor square buildings the loader and the uh, middle eastern one the finchatton one in grosvenor square which have all the facilities i've just described as the number one Hyde park underground car parking 24-hour porterage, concierge, swimming pool, gymnasium, video rooms, whatever you want. And that's becoming the norm where they can build them. There's another one in, in Curzon Street that's being built by Brockton Capital. Another one being built in, in Audley Square. So there are quite a lot going up, but they manage to either buy or amalgamate sites. And there are very few large enough sites to take this nowadays. The one that's being dealt with, built in Brompton Square, I bought all the buildings for that site. And that was a huge residential building on one side, another residential building on another side, a car park on another side. I mean, it takes a lot of time to amalgamate a site, as you know, Sean. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about London and who lives in London. Because, you know, last time I visited London, which I think was about 18 months ago, just before... COVID. You didn't come in and see me, Sean. That's I, not I nice. didn't. You were too busy selling palaces to royalty, <laughs> but but I do plan on coming back as soon as I've got my vaccine. So when I walked through one of my favourite neighbourhoods in London, which is Mayfair, it seemed like it was an empty town that was bought by foreigners who don't live there, and they've got these beautiful homes. And I believe actually you walked me through a, a fifty million sterling townhouse which was beautifully done owned by a foreigner who has never stepped foot in the house and and the, this house is just sitting in the heart of london vacant and then we have i think you know in new york city what happened with covid is a lot of the people who live in these beautiful apartment buildings actually fled new york for the suburbs and they bought homes in the suburbs and i think that's a trend that you've seen 
happening well, in London. People are moving out of the country. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Absolutely. so who is who is living in London? Who are the people who have stayed? Who's who's living? And what is the impact of that on the value and the real estate? Well, you've got lots of very wealthy children of very wealthy people at university. In fact, there was a house that's just been rented at a shade under two million pounds a year to a young student in Mayfair, Cal Ross House in Cal Ross Street. We've got lots of young Indians and Chinese and Arabs. And actually, London is much more vibrant than you think it is. And I have a feeling that what you saw in Mayfair was over a weekend, because Mayfair is made up of people living in Mayfair and people working in Mayfair. And I suspect the quiet period that you talked about was the weekend because it's, well, it's not true now. Mayfair's dead now in COVID, absolutely dead. But it seems to me we still have, I know, we still have lots of Chinese, lots of Indians, lots of Arabs, lots of English living in, in prime central London. Do they live there all year round? No, they don't. They go back to Singapore or KL or Hong Kong or Shanghai or wherever. And they come from time to time. But London has always been like that, where they, people buy very expensive homes as a foothold or a bolt hole in London. Then they go away and come back whenever they fancy. I remember selling a house to one of the Dubai royal family in Upper Grosvenor Street, number 11, Upper, number 21 Upper Grosvenor Street. And I don't think he went back into that house for five years. What do you think this does to the texture of the neighborhoods and the culture of uh, the cities? Am I meant to be saying it's a shame? I don't think it's a shame. Because oh, no, 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 not at all. Please be houses. candid. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think a lot of people listening to this maybe have this misconception that London is a city that should be just for Londoners and New York should be a city just for New Yorkers. But the things that have made both of these cities great, in my opinion, is the are fact the that they are the foreigners, exactly, the people who have contributed to the texture of these cities, the people from, it's kind of like a melting pot of people from all over the world that have created this unique culture and have added to the uh, entertainment, the restaurants, the finance, everything that makes these cities great um, is contributed by the people who come to these cities from other places. You're absolutely correct. And they bring a lot of culture, a lot of value, a lot of family values. They educate their children in the cities they live in. They bring a hell of a lot to the table, much more than people can imagine. One cannot underestimate. One can't say New York is for New Yorkers and London is for Londoners and Hong Kong's for Hong people from Hong Kong. It's not true. We're living in a global society. You can travel around the world in less than a day. Yeah. People coming into our cities only enhance our cities, only make our cities better places. And it's much better for our children to be brought up with different, mixing with different cultures than not. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Amen to that. So, you know, I think London and New York were two of the hardest hit cities by COVID. And, you know, certainly COVID changed New York City in some ways that I think are permanent and some ways that I think are temporary. What have you seen in London and how do you think COVID has affected the way people are going to live in their homes? And what do you think their expectations are going to be 
in a post-COVID world, if anything? Look, both of us have heard many, many, many different views and many different stories. So I don't know the answer to all of the questions you pose in that one statement. But I'll tell you what I am noticing it. And I noticed in New York the last time I was there. And that is mainly, well, not mainly, retail is suffering. Restaurants are suffering. The uh, theatre industry is suffering. If you were to drive around London today and see the number of shops that have got for sale signs on them or are not opening again, it makes you want to cry. People are saying they like the idea of working from home. And if you do a questionnaire, you'll find that the highest percentage says they'd rather work from the office only three days a week and work from home two days a week. I think people are going to miss interaction with others and socializing with others. And I think the office world is going to get back on its feet again. But the biggest thing that you notice is there's nothing going on. There are no people around. There are no cars around. You can't, the restaurants are all closed. The shops are and not closed, but permanently closed. The amount of, retail, of restaurant business that have gone bust in the UK in the last year is incredible. Yeah, we've seen the same thing in New York, unfortunately. And, and, and department yeah. stores that, you know, were the anchor, the most important department stores. They're getting rid of them. Debenhams, they're getting rid of 30 of their department stores. It's such a shame. Yeah. Do you see this coming back or do you think this is a wave of like the future that, you know, online shopping has kind of devastated retail? I'm sure online shopping took a lot, lot away from retail. But having said that, I think if you want to buy luxury items or you want to go to a great department store in London, there's nothing. You can't do that online. You've got to go to Harrods. You've got to go to Selfridges. You can't take away from the fact that they've got everything at your fingertips. And there's a great difference between shopping online and actually seeing the merchandise right in front of you. I think that the stores will come back. And I think those who've got the wherewithal to withstand this period will make a very strong comeback. I think the office uh, layout will change dramatically. I think people have realized the English are not very good at social distancing. You go onto a train, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, subway, that's what you call it, a subway in America. The tube. If you, go to, if you go to the subway in England, they're like sardines. There's no social distancing. And I think people have realized from this pandemic that we need to be a little bit more distant. We need to give ourselves our own space and our own time. And I think a lot of people have liked working from home. I personally don't like it at all. I want to be in my office every day of my life. Well, your office is, you've got a, an office which is like a home. I mean, when I walked into your office, it's, you know, there's, there's, it's such a great environment. It was an extension of you and everything that you've done, a collection of stories, you know, from your life. Yes. Well, I'm getting old. <laughs> so what's next for you? What's in your future with respect to real estate? And, um, you know, is there a 300 million sterling sale this year for you or uh, a development project? What, where do you see the future? We would like to continue expanding our reach in the agency world. We hope to open a new branch in uh, the south of France this year. We'd like to open in Monte Carlo. Not so easy because of the legislation there. We'd like to open in two or three other places. And we have ambitions to come to America, but what with the, the, the fees 
that agents and brokers can demand from their principals makes life very difficult because you in America, if you're a good broker, what do you get? 70%, 80% of the fee? Well, don't, don't get me started because there's a whole new phenomenon going on here. And, and hopefully for you, I know Purple Bricks has come there and tried to disrupt your culture. And this is another whole podcast episode that you and I should absolutely do about the boutique agency, which I know you are a strong proponent of, as am I. But what, what's, what we've seen here is that there's a lot of venture capital money coming in just to disrupt for disruption's sake. And it's more destructive than disruptive. And, Who are you uh, talking about? Can you not name names? I'd, I'd, I'd rather not name names, but everyone kind of knows who we're talking about. But there, there are a number of companies that have tried to commoditize our service as negotiators and experts when we're kind of in the service business. We're not in the tech business. And well, that's you know, you're absolutely right. The value of an estate agent or a broker relates to his knowledge, his personality, his ability, his kindness, his emotional state. All those things bring a broker to the forefront in the line of brokers. But when you look at certain American brokerage houses who are coming over to England, and at the moment there are only two, well, there's, there's, there's talk of another one with a C coming over to England. I don't want to mention any names, but there are two already who are trying to come to England or have come to England. One begins with an N, and the other one begins with a B. And I'm not so sure their model works. I'm well, well, it, so do, sure it, it doesn't is... work. It doesn't work here in the U.S. because you know, as a business owner, for 40 years, and I know as a business owner for 20 years, that it's not sustainable. You know, money has to come from somewhere, and the best value you can give to your client is your expertise, your level of customizable service. And customer and service integrity. and, and the, integrity the they have in you, right? But it seems like the new value system does not value those things that we've just discussed. That it's more yeah. about it it's doesn't. more, yeah, and then it's more about size. It's more about maximizing, you know, share of the market instead of quality. It's the quantity. And then it's trying to cash out after you go public. And if you look at what's going on in the markets, you know, it's, it's all over the place with valuation. You know, it's not only in real estate, it's in other things. But absolutely, um, you're absolutely right. But tell me, let me ask you a question. Isn't an estate agent or a real estate broker's job, isn't his job really to get the maximum price for his client? So if you are asked to sell an apartment or a house by a client, is your job not to try and get the most amount of money for your client because he's your client and he's paying you for the sale and you've got to do what, what is in your capability, with the, your best effort to get the highest price? That's a rhetoric question. I'm not asking you to answer that. But what yeah. I have noted is with the agencies that you're talking about, it's not a question of doing what we English brokers have been taught to do year in, year out, acting in your client's best interest, it's closing a deal that counts. And if that means you're going to tell the client, well, you know what, I told you it was worth 10 million, but actually I made a mistake, it's worth seven, take the money and run. But that's not my style of doing business, and I bet you it's not your style of doing business. 
Right. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people can point and say, oh, you know, Gary and Sean are old fashioned and they're used to doing business the old way. But I would argue with that. And I'd say that what we're doing is actually just, you know, disruptive where we're, we're delivering a high level of service to the client by representing their interests, trying to get them the best deal possible and not commoditize it where, you know, we're all things to everyone but we're experts in the field and we're providing the highest level of service for that specific circumstance. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, this is definitely another podcast, but I definitely would love to kind of speak to you about this. But uh, Gary, this has been really insightful. I really hope you're doing the next big deal. You've done so many of them. You're, you're definitely the person on the front lines of this luxury market. Um, it's always great chatting with you. You bring a wealth of experience, insight, and knowledge to you know, conversation. It's really, it's really awesome speaking to you. You're and, making me blush. <laughs> um, well, enjoy the rest of the the day and i hope that um you come out of covid uh soon just like us in new york and and our cities are going to come back mark my words on this podcast today london new york and the global cities that have the infrastructure they'll come back with a vengeance wait and see i agree demand imagine the pent-up demand americans can't travel i'm waiting for three or four buyers of mine from america to come over I speak to them regularly. They can't come over. I'm telling you, people will ditch the idea of um, worrying about what they have to pay for something to the last penny. And they will just come along and say, what do I have to pay for this? And you'll tell them a figure. What do you think I can buy it for? You'll tell them a figure. Deal will be done. Agreed. Agreed. So, Gary, uh, thank, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Gary from Beecham Estates, not like I said, Bausham. How ignorant and like... Uh, not in the least bit ignorant. <laughs> and it's, most people would have pronounced it the way you did, and I don't take any offense. Sean, have a lovely weekend. <laughs> thank you. You too, Gary. And looking forward to catching up in person in either New York or London. I'm looking forward to it. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.